Our scripture today is Psalm 149, verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will satisfy the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Thank you, Stel. Good morning. Before I begin this morning, I just want to put in another plug for the children's church next week. You know, this is uh, a good time of year when we can have children's church on third Sabbath, and it's the first one of the year. So if you know some kids, bring them. The, the kids just love it. Uh, they've been waiting. So again, children's church next Sabbath at 11. It'll be real quiet in here without kids next week. All right. They say... There are two great questions of our age, one of which has been mastered by Western contemporary human beings to a much greater degree than the other one has. The one we're fairly good at is the question, how? How is a question of function? How does it work? How can it be made? How can we do it? How did it come to be? How is a scientific question? And as science has advanced, we've become somewhat proficient at answering it. After all, we follow the science, right? The other question, however, is a little bit tougher. It's the question, why? Why does it work the way it works? Why did it come to be? Why is a question of purpose? And for that one, science isn't nearly so helpful. It's more of a philosophical question. To answer the why question, you've got to think about intent. Well, this morning we're going to think about a very basic, very simple why question. It affects every single one of us every single week when we come here on Sabbath to worship. It is the question, why do we sing? Do you know that singing is something that Christians have been doing now at worship services for a couple of thousand years? You probably guessed that, right? There was a guy named Pliny who lived in the first century. He was a civil servant who worked for the Roman government, a governor actually of a part of the world today that is known as Turkey. It was Bithynia in those days. Pliny worked for Trajan, who was the emperor of Rome. He happened to write a letter to his boss in A.D. 112 that survives to this day. And it provides a fascinating glimpse into what a worship service was like in a first century church in the area of Turkey. Now, there was a lot of social unrest in the empire in Pliny's day. So Emperor Trajan banned most social gatherings and, of course, that made it difficult for Christians to gather to worship. In fact, Christians were not always looked upon uh, with favor 
in those days, a lot of people considered Christians to be atheists since they refused to worship images and idols or pay homage to the popular gods of the age. So Pliny, when he writes to Trajan, he says that whenever he finds Christians, he has them arrested. And then he says, and I quote here, I asked them if they were Christians. If they confessed that they were, I asked them a second time and a third time with threats of punishment. If they persisted, I ordered them to be executed. Wow, imagine that. I mean, we think our rights are being violated if we have to wear a mask in Home Depot. I mean, in Pliny's day, it was just common practice for Christians to be executed simply because they said they were Christians. Pliny goes on to say that to make sure Christians are telling the truth when he interrogates them, he routinely has them tortured. He says, I quote again, I judged it even more necessary to find out the truth by torturing two female servants who were called deacons, but I discovered nothing more than a perverse and extravagant superstition, unquote. Took a lot of backbone to confess Christ in the days of Pliny, no? But one of the most interesting things left to us by Pliny in his letter is the description of an early church worship service which he got by torturing these people until they told him what went on, okay? It's the only secular document we have uh, of its kind in the whole world today. And here's what he writes, I quote, It was their habit to assemble before daylight, daylight on a certain day and to sing responsively a song to Christ as to a God. And they bound themselves by an oath, not for any criminal purpose, but on the contrary, that they would not commit theft or robbery or adultery or break their word or deny a deposit of trust money when called upon to restore it. After they had done these things, it was their custom to disperse and to reassemble later in order to partake of food of an ordinary and harmless kind, unquote. So that's a, a worship service, okay? He doesn't say that there was a sermon. He doesn't say that there was an offering. He doesn't even say that there was a scripture reading. What he does say is that there was singing. There was a song. They sang responsively a song to Christ as to a God. And we still do it today, 20 centuries later. Of course, that doesn't tell us why they did it, does it? And maybe we just do it because other Christians have been doing it for such a long time. That's called tradition. Something that people do because other people have been doing it for a long time. William Poteet wrote that in 1903, the Tsar of Russia noticed a sentry posted at an odd spot on the Kremlin grounds for no apparent reason. He asked the guard why he was posted there and the guard didn't know. He could only answer that he was ordered to stand there. Turns out that spot had been guarded for over a hundred years. Nobody knew why. Finally, the Tsar learned that in 1776, Catherine the Great had noticed the first flower of spring and springtime. When it comes in Moscow is a really big deal, all right? 
But on seeing that first spring bloom, Catherine had ordered a guard posted on that spot so that nobody might trample it underfoot and, and so destroy the first flower of spring. And 127 years later, the guards were still standing there guarding. The flower had long since passed to its rest. Some traditions die hard. Why do we sing? Is it simply tradition backed by a couple millennia of routine? Or, in the case of some of us, why do we not sing? Why do we not sing? That's a question the members of our music committee asked not long ago when we came, you know, they, they asked, when we come to worship on Sabbath, why is it that some people among us choose not to sing? Might it be that for some, singing has become just physically difficult, painful even? Might it be a lingering fear of spreading COVID germs? Are some of us kind of ashamed of our musical ability? Do we not know the music or maybe just not like it? Are we simply tradition breakers? I don't think that's the case. In their book, Sing, worship leaders Keith and Kristen Getty say that asking this question is most helpful when guiding a church into a richer worship experience. The question is, how did the congregation sing today? Now, while it's certainly true that people can sing well without worshiping, Getty maintains that singing well in a congregational setting is an indication that people are worshiping well. If you sing well, you worship well. Now, you may recognize the name Keith Getty. Along with Stuart Townend, he has written many contemporary worship songs, In Christ Alone and How Deep the Father's Love, are two, probably two of the most well-known right now. Some of what I share with you today will come from this little book. Getty suggests that there are three broad reasons that Christians sing together when they worship. Number one, we are created to sing. Number two, we are commanded to sing. And number three, we are compelled to sing. That's why we do it. We're created for it. We're commanded and compelled to do it. I'm going to think for a few, a few moments this morning about each of these three. And it's good for us to do this because we live in a time when congregational singing is said to be in decline. And maybe that's because Western Christianity as a whole has been in decline. But it also seems to be true that whenever there has been a spiritual revival among Christian people, it is always accompanied by a resurgence in singing. It's interesting that as Christianity seemed to all but die out in the late 20th century in places like England and Ireland, some of the most influential musicians hailed from those very places. Stuart Townen, Keith Getty, Graham Kendrick, Robin Mark, leading congregations to revival, especially in dark places like Ireland over the past 25 or 30 years. Christianity was, was literally died out in Ireland. And then in 1999, out of nowhere, it seemed, 
Robin Mark's CD, Revival in Belfast, which was a collection of the worship music he was leading his local church to sing, became Worship Album of the Year all over the world and one of the most popular uh, CDs ever of the worshiping Christian church. So why do we sing? First of all, it's because we're created to. It's how we're made. And by the way, the earliest reference to singing anywhere in Scripture is probably Job, the 38th chapter. Job is most likely the oldest book, predating even Genesis. And in chapter 38, God answers Job out of the storm. And he says, Where were you when I laid earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its foundations? Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Notice that singing is inseparably, inseparably connected with God's act of creating this planet we live on called earth. The last two lines of this, of this phrase are written in what is known as parallel construction. Morning stars in the first line is parallel with angels in the second. Sang together in the first line is parallel with shouted for joy in the second. Do you see here that singing is the spontaneous response of all God's angels when they see him do his creative work? Do you see that? God makes and the angels sing about it. And it's loud singing, too. Do you see? It's in a shouting voice. This is not meditative. This is not sedate. And it's not lip-syncing, either. It is joyful singing, not boring, not half-hearted. Here, before human beings were yet made, singing is a part of the natural response to creation. So they're linked, singing creation. It is perhaps the oldest reference to singing in scripture and it's linked directly with, with creation. Now when it comes to the creation of people we know that God chose to make human beings in his image, right? Way back in Genesis 1 God says let us make man in our image in our likeness and the context there in Genesis demands that the primary meaning of being made in God's image has to do with being created in community specifically male and female, as God himself is a community of oneness. We've talked about this before. But there are secondary implications of what it means to be, in, to be made in God's image. And one of those is that we have been given the ability to speak, unique among inhabitants of the earth. Okay? Of course, parrots, cockatiels, you know, and a few other beasts can be taught to mimic words. But we're talking about the in intelligible ability to use words in a creative manner, to use language to create. Okay? God creates by speaking. And human people, made in his image, alone among all creatures on earth, are also able to use words and language to speak and to a degree to even use them creatively. As Proverbs says, from the fruit of his lips, 
A righteous man is filled with good things as surely as the work of his hands reward them. From the fruit of his lips, as surely as your hands reward you. See, our words can be as powerful as what we do with our hands, he is saying. The psalmist sings, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So because we are in God's image and because God speaks, he makes vocal cords in people. By about week, week 12, the vocal cords of a baby growing in its mother's womb are in place and have been shown to work long before the baby is born. We may sound different when we sing, but each of us has the same vocal apparatus. So imagine that, you know. Uh, Pavarotti, Taylor Smith, uh, Bono, you and me, we're all the same. Of course we have infinitely different uh, ability levels, um, but we're all created with the ability to be able to sing at some level. Breath flowing up through our lungs, vibrating through our vocal cords, pushing out through the articulators of our mouth and our lips and our tongue. Listen, singing is not just a happy byproduct of God's intent to make creatures who can speak. It's something he designed us to be able to do. Why did he do that? Because he wants us to be like him. And he is a singer. It says so. In Zephaniah, God rejoices over us with singing. But what if we actually can't sing, all right? What if our stuff that we have just does not work, or it works so poorly that we're ashamed of it? We don't want people to hear it. Well, then Ephesians 5.19 tells us what we should do. Sing and make music where? In your heart to the Lord. Christian singing begins in the heart, not on the lips. We've just got to be careful not to use this as an excuse. Okay? Now, those who lead singing ought to have a little bit of, of uh, ability. They ought to have at least come up to some level of ability, maybe to be able to stay on pitch or something maybe. I, I still don't know why they let me even, even do it. I am not a skilled singer. But when we sing in the congregation, ability is not a requirement. Did you hear that? It's not. Now this is not to make an excuse for intentional mediocrity. But God does not command us to sing well. He just commands us to sing the best we can. The truth is, we are designed to sing, and we have everything we need to do it. God is far less concerned with our tunefulness than he is with our integrity. Now, here's something else to consider about being created to sing. When God creates, he creates not only for function, he creates for beauty. For example, in Genesis 2. It says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Okay? Trees were made to provide food. They were also designed to look good. Why? Why did God do that? Because God likes beauty. 
Beauty, in fact, is a profound evidence supporting creation over and against evolution. It's also a profound evidence outside of Scripture that God is a good God, the fact that beauty exists. We like beautiful things, too, because we are made in His image. Melody adds beauty to the functionality of words. Have you ever wondered why we sing our national anthems instead of just reciting them? Every Friday morning, I join the kids up at the school, and part of what we do on, at the beginning of the day is the pledges. We have the Pledge of Allegiance and Pledge, of, pledge to the Bible. We, we recite the Pledge of Allegiance together, and that's okay, but it's not inspiring. It would be better if it were sung. Melody and harmonies add a level of beauty and transcendence to words. In fact, and this is kind of off the subject, but it illustrates the fact, and maybe it's a story you'll enjoy, uh, it, it illustrates the fact that people recognize the beauty of singing even if they have nothing to do with, with Christianity, okay? The Honda Automobile Company was in a quandary because the new highway safety laws regarding hybrid vehicles uh, were coming to bear on them. When their hybrid cars are moving on electric power alone, they don't make enough noise to be heard. And so Honda had to come up with a way to alert pedestrians that an otherwise silent car was moving because it could be a danger if people didn't hear it coming. They had to engineer some kind of noise into the car that the car could make. And they didn't want it to go beep, 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 beep. You know, that is just annoying. That's an annoying sound. We rented a Prius in, in Reno a couple of weeks ago, and that's what it did every time you put it in reverse. It beep, beep, beep. It was like, it's a terrible sound. It's like driving a bulldozer. Uh, the Honda engineers were not going for that, right? Then they didn't want fake engine noise either. They wanted something that would showcase their cars, their cars in, a, in a positive light um, while, while still alerting people to the fact that, they're move, that they were a moving presence that could be a danger. They wanted something beautiful. Guess what they came up with? A choir singing. Yeah. A single harmonic note recorded and piped from a speaker underneath the car through a tube that exits underneath the front bumper. The designers of Honda said this. They said, we searched the world over for the most beautiful sound, and this is what we think it is. People singing. Hmm. Now, I know this because we just bought one, and we kept wondering, what is that sound? Like angels singing, coming out from our car every time we're going slow. Okay? We took it back to Wilder. We said, there is something wrong with our car. It is singing. You've got to make it stop doing this. And they said, we can't. It's the law. And they told us the story. Right? Now, it's true that some people don't like the choir voices. They really don't. Some people are trying to hack their systems. I read this on the forums. So that their Honda will play the sound that they want it to play when it's moving. You know, something like Sweet Home Alabama or something like that. But those people are just hillbillies. They just are. The point is this. Singing is God's method of adding beauty to the spoken word. And have you noticed how melody will cement certain phrases into long-term memory, hmm? whether we want it to be there or not. 
How many of you remember two all beef patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun? Yeah, you remember. That was 1975. A long time ago. But it sticks with you all these years because of the musical jingle that went with it. God made us to be powerfully engaged in our senses and our memories by music. So I guess maybe we ought to be a little careful about what we put in there, huh? The point here is that creation sings with the songs of God. When we sing as God's people, it brings us in line with the whole of what he has made. Listen to this. This comes from Psalm 89. Shout for joy, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Let the sea resound and everything in it. Let the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. This is incredible, is it not? That when we sing God's praise, we join in tune with the whole cosmos. Those of you who have read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia books, do you remember how Narnia came to be, how it was made? Anybody? The great lion, Aslan, sings it into existence. And Lewis delights in pointing out that the song couldn't be distinguished from the singer and that when you saw the singer, he eclipsed everything else. And so we are created to sing because it leads us joyfully to the great singer, the creator of heaven and earth. When we sing, we are led to him. So when you come here to worship on Sabbath morning, don't sing primarily because you love to sing, okay? And don't not sing because you don't really like to. Sing because you love who made you. Sing because you love the one who formed you and enables you to sing. That's number one. We sing because we are created to sing. Number two, we're created because we are commanded to sing. That's what we do, okay? Why does God command us to sing? Is it just because he enjoys bossing us around? Is he just arbitrary? Of course not. We know that when he tells us to do something, whatever it is, even if it's difficult, it's for our own good. It's so our life can be better. I have a friend who maintains that we shouldn't call the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments because the word commandment carries a kind of stern chain of command type of connotation. He says we should call them God's Ten Loving Suggestions for Having a More Fulfilling Life. God tells us to do certain things and not to do certain things because he knows life is just going to be better that way. It's just the way it is. Repeatedly and throughout Scripture, we are commanded to be a singing people. There are more than 400 references to singing in the Bible and at least 50 direct commands to sing. 50. That's way more times than we are commanded to keep the Sabbath. Evidently, singing must be good for us. Even so, commands are, well, 
their commands. When God commands us to sing, we do not have the option of disregarding it because we don't like the song or the music or the person leading it or because we just aren't in the mood or because we just don't want to. We don't have that option. Or because we aren't good singers. Okay? He even commands people who are not good singers to sing. Again, God is most concerned with the integrity of our response, not so much with the level of our musical ability. And so here, the passage that here is the passage that Stell just read to us a few moments ago. It's one of the dozens of commands that God gives his people to sing. Here it is. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let's walk through these verses. Verse 1 says, praise the Lord. Now some of you might remember that the book of Psalms, which was basically the hymnal for ancient Israel, is divided into five sections. And each section ends with a psalm that is a call to praise the Lord. Praise means to express warm admiration for something, to extol its virtues. So to praise God in this context means to sing of our admiration of him. The fifth section in the book of Psalms ups the ante on this. The call to praise begins with Psalm 144, and it builds into a crescendo culminating with Psalm 150. And Psalm 149 is right there in that final swelling of command, commanding to praise God. Now comes the command. He says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Notice, our singing is to be to who? To God. Yes, it's to the Lord. When we sing here together, we sing not only to each other and to ourselves, we are singing to God. He is the audience. And every so often around here, we will actually sing a song that's addressed directly to him. We did that last week when we sang, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. We sang it directly to God. Oh, you rescue the souls of men. See, to him. Now today, we sang, we sang primarily for God. Most of the music was not sung directly to him, addressing him as God, other than the chorus of all who are thirsty, where we sang, come, Lord Jesus, come, see? But most of our singing today was done to each other. We sing to each other, come, let us sing the song of songs. We sing it to each other. The psalmist says that we should in, intentionally find songs that we should sing to God. And then it says, sing a new song. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Of course, it's not practical or even possible for every song to be a new song. Or, or singing would be difficult most of the time. And certainly God never says that we shouldn't sing the old songs or our favorite songs. But occasionally, once in a while, God says, sing me something new. Okay? And he also says where we are supposed to do it. Where are we supposed to do it? Where does it say? 
in the, in the assembly of the saints. Yes, that means in church, together. It's okay to sing alone, or if you want to, at home or in the shower. By the way, how many of you actually sing in the shower? Can I see? One, two, it's just like I thought. Nobody hardly ever sings in the shower. I wouldn't be caught dead singing in the shower. All right? I, just, I just think this saying is mostly an urban myth. People might sing alone. Not many of them are singing in the shower, at least not me. But the command is to sing together in worship. Okay? This is for congregational singing. That's why we do it. It means that singing is an integral part of the worship experience. It's not just the preliminaries. It's not just the closing song. It's just as important as a sermon. In fact, maybe it's more important. Maybe it is. It was for the first century church, wasn't it? We learned that. And something happens when we sing together in the assembly of the saints. Actually, several things happen. One thing that happens is that we are going to be singing some songs that are not necessarily our favorites because we didn't choose them. But they may be somebody else's favorite. So we have to learn to bear with one another in love. And that's why it's so important to come in person to worship. We get to practice bearing with one another, deferring to one another, submitting to one another, even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't necessarily like a person. See, we're learning to bear with one another. We may be singing together a song in a style that might not be our favorite because we didn't choose it, but it, it might be a style that somebody else across the aisle really enjoys. So when we sing together, we learn to lay down our own tastes for the sake of the whole assembly. But then even more important, when we sing together, we join together with people who are a little bit diverse from us and we offer praise together to the God who is the Lord of all of us. In other words, it makes us into one. It creates community. God uses our singing to work his miracle of community among us. Now that might happen a little bit during a sermon, but there is a much greater potential for it to happen when we sing, which is why I believe the devil works so hard to get us to bicker and fight over music. He knows that when we sing together, good things are going to happen to God's people, and he doesn't want that to happen. And then notice how verse 2 brings our singing around again and links it with the theme of creation and joy. Let Israel rejoice in their maker, you see? And now he adds the theme not only of creation, but that God is our guide and our protector in life. Let the people of Zion rejoice in their king. Okay. And now verse 4, for the Lord takes delight in his people. That word delight, it's the same kind of word you use to describe the, the way your favorite food tastes. That's the linguistic uh, origin of this word, the, your favorite food and how good it tastes when you're hungry for it. That's delight, okay? It says, for the Lord takes delight in his people. That's us. We sing not only because we are delighted with God, but because he is delighted with us. Imagine that. Imagine that. It's almost too impossible to believe, isn't it? I mean, when you know yourself, how could he be delighted in me? But he is. 
And then finally, verse 5, it says, Let the saints rejoice in this honor. In other words, congregational singing of praise to God is an honor. It's not burdensome or boring. It's honorable. And, he says, let them sing for joy where? On their beds. Wait a minute. This was supposed to be congregational worship. Maybe he anticipated most of us were going to sleep through worship. I don't know. But what happens when the day is over and you crawl into bed and you've worshipped well? Isn't it true that oftentimes those songs will just pop right back into your brain again? It happens to me without fail week after week after week. And this is how it should be. We sing The songs we sing on Sabbath will stick with us for days. And there are so many other commands. Like, for instance, one from the New Testament, Colossians 3, 16. Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you, how? Richly. By teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, that's one way. And by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Psalms are the sacred text of Scripture. Hymns are the deeply theological songs concerned with God's character and who He is. Spiritual songs are the praise songs, often concerned with our own personal experience with God. We're supposed to sing all three of these to each other, it says. Well, how can you do that unless you come to worship and you sing together? He says, let them dwell in you richly. That word brings to mind adjectives like generously and magnificently and thoroughly. And that talks about how we are supposed to sing. Again, this is not talking about musical ability. It's talking about heart attitude. And the attitude is to be one of thankfulness for the absolutely unmerited benefits of God's gracious goodness in our lives. How we sing reveals a lot about how we think and feel about something. As Getty says, there's a sense in which our singing betrays the truth about us, whether for good or bad. So that's the second reason we sing. God has commanded it for our own spiritual benefit and because he enjoys it and he delights in us. Finally, the third reason, we sing because we are compelled to sing. We just have to. Why? Because the gospel is such absolutely good news that it requires more than just spoken words alone can express. There is just something about the way most of us are wired up that singing raises the emotional engagement to a higher level than words alone can convey, even if we're not good singers. So we just got to sing. We got to. The magnificence of Jesus is so compelling. Jesus in his saving power. Jesus who washes us and makes us clean. Who covers shame and sin and forgives it. Jesus who brings us into God's family. Who knows us and calls us by name. Jesus who sees us all the way down and yet still wants to be in relationship with us. Jesus who suffers with us. Jesus, who challenges us to live for his kingdom, who gives us new life with all its joys and hope. Jesus, who is that treasure in the field for which we sold everything, and who is that treasure that nobody can take from us. Jesus, 
whose inbreaking kingdom sweeps us up into something that he is doing in the whole cosmos, something far larger than ourselves, who is so unbelievably good to us that we just must sing. Spoken words are not enough. A month or so ago, our small group that meets at Gerald's home on Tuesday evenings watched Chariots of Fire. We've all talk, we all talked about that movie. We said, hey, let's watch that. And we decided we're, that's what we're going to do. It's been one of my all-time favorites. In the triumphant moment of that uh, movie, you remember that Eric Liddell, the Scottish Christian hero, wins the Olympic gold in the 400-meter race. At the close of the film, the afterward tells that Eric Little spent the remainder of his life in China, the land of his birth, as a missionary and perished there in a Japanese concentration camp at the end of World War II. What it doesn't say is that in 1925, just a year after winning the gold, Little shocked many people with his decision to return to China. They just, they just couldn't fathom why such a successful athlete would do such a thing. And as he stood there on the platform of Waverly Station in Edinburgh, about to leave his homeland, never to return, with large crowds gathered there to send him off, he was asked to give a few words to tell why he was giving up competitive running to go to China. Eric Little stood there and thought for a moment, and the words wouldn't come. Instead, in order to communicate more memorably the reason he was leaving fame to preach Christ in a distant land, he chose simply to lead the crowd in a spontaneous rendition of an old Isaac Watts hymn. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. It was an enormous impact he made there that day by simply singing that phrase, an experience that few who heard it ever forgot. We sing because we are created to sing. We sing because we are commanded to sing and because we are compelled to sing. So stand with me as we sing to close.